book, uh, Biography of Ruth Murdoch, and near the beginning, he talks about walking into a TV studio, Michael Wolff describes this scene, and uh, he's immediately buttonholed by Jonathan Alter, lead writer for Newsweek, a man described as, you know, embodying journalistic rectitude. And without any preamble, without any higher hello, Jonathan Alter, who, who's just heard the news that uh, Rupert has agreed to a whole series of sit-down interviews with Michael Wolf for this biography, Jonathan Alton, Alter says to the author Michael Wolf, have you really going to screw him? <laughs> so this reminds me of uh, people on the liberal left who describe, you know, vast swaths of the world as just trash. Right? There's just inevitable in-group, out-group uh, dynamic to the way that, that people relate to each other, where out-groups are regarded as you know, varying degrees of less than human. So Jonathan Alter and the journalistic establishment wants to stand up for journalistic rectitude by operating with the opposite of journalistic rectitude against Rupert Murdoch. It's like uh, the, the adage, you know, no freedom for the enemies of freedom, or no freedom for the enemies of democracy, or you know, anyone who wants to ruin, besmirch, befuddle, threaten, destroy our liberal left world. Right. No, no human rights for them. Just nothing but all-out war. And so, why would people you know, advocate for things that seemingly the very opposite of what they tend to stand for? Because of the situation, right? Despite the best of intentions, the noblest of motives, the most sublime of hero systems. We all, down deep, find people who are different from us. There's a little part of us, no matter how we try to suppress and squelch it, still, still thinks that people who are you know, quite different from us, not fully human. That Jonathan Alter, in the name of journalistic rectitude, is saying to Michael Wolfe, with regard to his biography of Rupert Murdoch, and, his guise of obtaining interviews with Mike Rupert Murdoch, I hope you're really going to screw him. And most of the time when mainstream media talks to dissidents, if uh, the dissident view is considered anathema by the powers that be in the media, right, that interview is going to be done with the express purpose of just you know, screwing the dissident over. I remember in 1993, I was the Placer County Chairman for this school choice ballot initiative. And a reporter from the Auburn Journal came, came over to interview me. And I, I had you know, things that I wanted to say, making the case for, for school choice. But he already had the story written. It really didn't matter what I had to say. He already had everything down. 
and uh, that's a kind of a disturbing part of being interviewed often is when you encounter a journalist who already has the story written they already have their preconceptions and uh, their brain is running down a track right? when your brain's running down a track you're essentially impervious to evidence you're not going to take in anything new you're not going to be open in an interview to hearing anything you know, you, you, your brain is on a track right? or your, your brain is just full up with all the elements of your story and you're just looking to slot slot something in that you've already you know, created space for now most journalistic interviews in my experience are not like this too many, I don't know, maybe a quarter of them in my experience but uh, I, it is very common to encounter people whose brains just run on tracks right? they're not going to deviate, they're not going to leave the track they're just going to keep, keep motoring down that particular railway line no matter the evidence no matter the situation, no matter what happens no matter what they hear their brain's just going to keep running down certain tracks. So I heard a good line in a Harvard symposium on the Middle East. It was recorded about five days ago. And uh, it quoted the Jordanian foreign minister as saying that uh, Hamas didn't create the situation in the Middle East between the Israelis and the Arabs, that uh, the situation created Hamas. Wow, that's a really pithy way of saying things. Now, of course, the Hamas attack on southern Israel did create the current uh, Israeli invasion of Hamas and did create the, the overwhelming necessity that Israelis would feel to invade Gaza and go on a rampage against Hamas with the inevitable loss of civilian life as Hamas deliberately you know, hides among civilians like kindergartens and hospitals and schools. So in one sense the, the current war in Gaza was created by Hamas. Right? Hamas did create this current situation of crisis in the Middle East. But the Jordanian foreign minister is right that uh, the Arab-Israeli conflict was not created by Hamas. The Arab-Israeli conflict created Hamas. Right? Hamas would not be Hamas without the Arab-Israeli conflict. On the other hand, uh, because Hamas is so dedicated to the complete destruction of the Jewish state, all right, when, you're, when you're dealing with an enemy who is dedicated to your destruction, all right, that limits your options. And so, as long as Hamas has there remains stalwart in its complete commitment to the destruction of the Jewish state that limits how the Jewish state can respond and when Gazans elect Hamas back in 2006 right, that puts the situation on railway tracks and it can just kind of go down a certain track because back in 2004 2005 right, when Israel withdrew from Gaza there was talk about Gaza getting its own airport in its own port and that didn't happen when Hamas got elected because look at all the weaponry that Hamas has been able to amass 
without its own airport, without its own port. So just think, you know, what they would have been able to do with their own airport, with their own port. So certain decisions get made, such as Gaza electing Hamas and Hamas wiping out the Palestinian uh, uh, PLA, Palestinian Authority, PA. And that put the Gaza-Israel situation on a railway track. It's just kind of inevitable. It's just going to keep moving down this track inevitably to the situation we're in right now. And so there's certain choices that we make in life or are made around us. And the die is cast. Situation is set. That we're all on a railway car that's just inevitably rattling down a railway line. There's, there's no way to get off. Because as long as Hamas is dedicated to the destruction of Israel and 200,000 Israelis have to be evacuated from their homes, right, uh, Israel has no choice but to go into Gaza no matter the cost in civilian lives to destroy Hamas as a governing and military infrastructure. So Autistic Merit says, YouTube persists in deporting its top messages in spite of my selecting all messages each and every time. Yes. So with uh, many forms of social media and many forms of life, right, no matter how much we protest, all right, the railway train is going down the tracks. And we can select all messages, but the algorithm's not going to change, right? The world's not going to change for us. Right? We have to change the adapt to the reality of the world. The reality of the world is that uh, social media companies have become strongly incentivized to uh, limit many kinds of speech. Uh, probably number one incentive is to make it, you know, the platform more advertising friendly. So I really like Kick. All right, Kick has very lax moderation, much more free speech. Uh, downside of Kick is that it's largely funded by gambling. So I'm not a, a big fan of gambling, or don't have much of a desire to promote gambling. On the other side, right, you get uh, you get more free speech on Kick. So I've been profiled, written about, you know, a dozen, two dozen three dozen times. I was on the cover of the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, I was profiled in Rolling Stone, online journalism review, uh, Los Angeles Daily News, LA Times, etc, etc. Now, most of the times I've been profiled and written about is uh, a focus of a master's paper at Stanford University. But the point is, most times that I've been written about, it's not as my narcissistic self would wish, because I'm just so inherently wonderful. It's because of something I represent, because of a role that I play in creating a current situation. So I started blogging almost every day in July 3, 1997. So I became one of those young online disruptors, like uh, you know, Matt Drudge and Harry Knowles, etc. So it was the situation that in large part propelled my media coverage and a very low-key C-list uh, media celebrity such as it was. And when the situation changed, right, 
much of you know, that coverage disappeared. So in September of 2001, right, the Jewish Journal of Los Angeles, the I think the uh, Los Angeles Magazine and the Los Angeles Times all had major in-depth profiles and we were ready to go. But then September 11 happened and all the profiles got spiked for you know, other topics because the situation had changed. So it, it was no longer an important situation. You know, young disruptive forces on the internet you know, upending the way that various industries operate. Uh, no longer such an important story once the Twin Towers came down and uh, the US you know, invades Afghanistan and then prepares and goes into a war in, in Iraq. All right, uh, look for profiles that don't matter anymore. I don't, I don't matter anymore on a, a media level for probably two or three years after that because the situation's changed. Anyway, main point is I was really struck by that Jordanian foreign minister's comment. Hamas did not create the situation, the situation created Hamas. And yes, it's only partially accurate. Hamas did create the immediate situation we're in, but it's the wider, deeper, longer situation that we're in that's created Hamas. Yeah, my, my status was the real victim of 9-11. My, my profiles all jumped out the top floor. <laughs> <laughs> I was listening to the sublime sound of Amazing Grace, Grace when the notification for this stream flashed. The situation changed with great sacrifice. I came over. So, uh, Rupert Murdoch, regarded by the Wall Street Journal as you know the great crowning achievement of his uh, newspaper career, but it was it was a financial disaster. So he was absolutely you know ecstatic about gaining the Wall Street Journal. But he overpaid by about three billion dollars. All right. So it's so funny how we all get ecstatic getting what we want, and then you know, half the time it just crumbles to dust. And he thought he was going to be able to use the Wall Street Journal to destroy the New York Times. So it's now 15 years since Rupert took over the Wall Street Journal. 16 years. Like, how's that worked out? Uh, the New York Times is on much firmer footing now than it was back in 2007. New York Times is something like 10 million subscribers. I think the Wall Street Journal has something like 2 million. Uh, Wall Street Journal used to be much more of a distinctive business newspaper. Uh, now it's more of a general interest paper. I think it's, it's definitely an inferior product than before Rupert Murdoch took it over but it's not dramatically inferior. It's just moderately inferior. And given the changing economic situation with newspapers, I'm not sure that if Murdoch hadn't bought it out that uh, it would be you know, that much better than it is. Uh, Michael Wolf makes a good point that uh, people who work for Rupert Murdoch tend to be among the happiest people in the news media. So, most uh, news media people don't seem particularly happy. But uh, those who work for Murdoch are something of an exception. And it's a lot easier to be happy when you're not 
<laughs> tied down by all sorts of you know nitpicking rules and principles of ethical conduct. All right, it's a lot easier to be called a hypocrite when you stand for things, when you have commitments that transcend yourself. Uh, that Rupert Murdoch essentially uses First Amendment attorneys to allow his, his employees the greatest possible latitude to say whatever they want, you know, whether it's factual or not. So I find, I find the Financial Times consistently more valuable than the Wall Street Journal. Damn, I'm trying to do a live stream here, guys, and the bloody trash man really messing with my sound. So in this Michael Wolf book, he keeps calling the Wall Street Journal the second most important newspaper in the world. Is that still true? So I can't believe I spend about $180 a year to subscribe to the Financial Times. I far and away the most of any newspaper subscription. I spend about $12 a month to subscribe to the Sydney Morning Herald, $13 a month to subscribe to Apple News Plus. But there's just so many valuable articles in the Financial Times. They seem particularly keyed into the Biden administration. So if you want to know what's going on in the Biden administration, the Financial Times is probably the best source. To be continued.